We are finishing our series on the book of Acts. As he paused for an amen, but didn't get one. We are finishing our series on the book of Acts by looking at how Paul finishes his life in ministry. We're interested in how it is that we, like Paul, can finish well. Two weeks ago, I suggested to you that one way we finish well is to strive and clear our conscience before God and man how, by doing all we possibly can to reach everyone, to tell everyone, to show everyone, to love on everyone the good news, the love of Jesus Christ. Now, the message this morning was supposed to be the message next week, but then the market went and crashed. Maybe you heard about that. A few of you did. Oh, there's nerves in the room this morning over the market crashing. Good. The market crashed, and so I decided to preach next week's sermons this week for reasons which will become obvious, I think, as we go on this morning. I'm telling you this because this means up front we need to cover a big chunk of narrative this morning. We're in the middle of the story, and I can't go skipping around or we'll get all mixed up. And so we are going to read Acts 25 and 26 in their entirety. Yes, two whole chapters. I'm sure I'm violating some sort of good preaching rule with that decision. But I figure you guys are special and so we can handle it. Amen? The good news is that Luke, an incredible storyteller, is truly at his best in these final chapters in Acts. So I'm going to do my best to read his story well. If you'll do your best to stay in the story with me on the edge of your comfortable seats. So will you strive to keep your conscience clear before God and man by hanging in there during the long reading this morning? If so, say, we will, God helping us. All right, let's do it. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 25. I'm beginning at verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Festus is the Roman governor that is taking the place of Governor Felix that we read about two weeks ago. So on his way to Caesarea, he's going to stop in Jerusalem because he knows what a key role Jerusalem and its leaders will play in his province. And those leaders, they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. That would be Nero at this time. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have, done, I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. 
If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa, this is the last of the ruling Herods. Maybe you've heard of Herod. King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officials and the leading men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea. This would be political hyperbole. It wasn't the whole Jewish community, and it wasn't the whole community in Jerusalem and Caesarea. But Festus is about the pomp and circumstance here. Shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to His Majesty about Him. Therefore, I have brought Him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope 
in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Paul doesn't believe obedience is important. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them, they left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, 
this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. These are many of the very words of God. Amen? I got news. I got news of the market crashing while I was studying these final chapters in Acts. And the market crashing made me notice something. Have you noticed how many of Paul's last days, at least those that we have recorded in Acts, how many of Paul's last recorded days are spent with the rich and powerful? You noticed? First, Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander. Then the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees. Then, well, the two guys I like to call the F-team, Felix and Festus, the Roman governors. Finally, King Agrippa and all the muckety-muck important peoples of Caesarea. And all of this, of course, is stepping stone to Paul finally realizing, I think, his dream since the beginning time on the road to Damascus, Paul seeing the man, seeing Caesar, the most powerful human being in the world at the time. Now, when something like that strikes me in the Bible, I always ask the same profound theological question, what's up with that? Right? So we're going to ask that question this morning. I want to talk a bit this morning about what often happens, what often happens at least when the gospel interacts with the rich and powerful. This this interaction happens with all the powerful folks I just mentioned, but we're going to zero in on Herod in particular. This Herod is Herod Agrippa II, great-grandson of Herod the Great, the Christmas Herod. And Agrippa gives us a classic example of how the rich and powerful often react when they hear of the gospel. They are, they are not always, but very often, at least initially interested, or at least initially intrigued. They are curious. And one reason I think they're often curious is because powerful people respect power. And when you start talking about power over death, man, are you talking about power? That's power. And so the rich and powerful are at least curious often. Take Agrippa in our story this morning. Soon after Festus tells Herod that Paul is claiming a dead man, Jesus, is now alive. More on that next week. Herod says, you know what? I'd like to hear this man myself. Oh, he's curious, isn't he? Power over death? You know, I'd like to hear more. And sure enough, Paul's entire defense before Herod centers on the resurrection of the dead. Herod is intrigued. And Paul senses his interest, I think, because near the end of his defense, Paul turns to Agrippa and pops the question. He asks Herod whether Herod believes the prophets. And specifically in context, whether Herod believes the prophets concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now, I've always thought that Herod responded to Paul's question with sarcasm or even disdain. Did you? Something like, you know, it's hard to spell that in the Bible. I'm sure that's why the NIV left that out. You know, something like, 
do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Yeah, get out of here. Then this week I read Joseph Fitzmaier. Uh, probably, I'm not, well, I don't know if he's the most highly respected scholar and commentator on Acts, but he's up there. And Fitzmaier translates the Greek, he's an expert Greek linguist, he translates Herod's response this way, listen, a little more and you are sure to make me a Christian. And in Fitzmaier's opinion, at least, while Agrippa may still be trying to make a joke, Fitzmaier thinks Herod is truly shaken by Paul's words. Because he does believe the prophets. He does know the story. And he's shaken. In contrast to, to Festus' loud outburst that Paul is out of his mind, Herod's comparatively quiet response shows that, that Herod at least understands what Paul's talking about. As the passage tells us, Herod is well acquainted with Jewish customs and controversies. So, of course, it would include this big one on the resurrection of the dead. One common response of the rich and powerful to the gospel is often intrigued. And maybe even a James Bond response, shaken if not stirred, right? It's as good as it gets. I'm sorry. Agrippa may be rattled a bit here. And the next question is why? Why might a God who raises the dead of all things rattle the rich and powerful? Maybe because that's a far more powerful God than all the riches and power they have ever known. And so they're curious. And so maybe something crosses their mind like, whoa, if that's true, then I've been barking up the wrong tree. And they pause. They're intrigued, maybe even shaken. This past week, God shook our world. He shook the world of the rich and powerful in particular. I mean, just look at them. Or should I say, look at us. You're looking at pictures of the movers and shakers on Wall Street this past week. Don't those Wall Street shakers look shaken? Okay, the guy near the bottom left is my favorite. Check him out. Someone get the man a Rolaids. Yes? This past week alone, this past week alone, investors lost $2.4 trillion in the American markets. $2.4 trillion. A trillion is that 12-0 number. In the past year, investors have lost $8.4 trillion. This past week was the worst week ever on Wall Street in several categories. The S&P 500 had its worst week since 1933, the Great Depression. This past week, God shook the world by shaking her financial markets. Now, why would God do that? Well, 
About 3,000 years ago, God gave his people a summary of what it means to follow God. And the very first thing on his mind, the very first command God gave the world through Israel at Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments, the very first thing God said was, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you suppose that when God shook the financial markets, he wanted to shake a God that many have placed before him? God wanted to expose a false God that many have placed before him, especially in America, do you think? How about here in West Bulls Community Church? In my opinion, that's what God may be up to in allowing the market to crash. His ultimate motive is always love. His ultimate motive is always to encourage people to place their trust in him rather than in anyone or anything else, including wealth. And if there's one thing God has demonstrated Genesis to Revelation and in the history of the world, he has always shown he will go to extremes to encourage trust because of how much he loves people. And if we find ourselves reacting like the people in these pictures, all of them looking up, isn't that something? But looking up at the wrong thing? If we find ourselves reacting like the people in these pictures, maybe it's because God has exposed a false God that we have placed before him. Where does your trust ultimately lie? In the market? Or in God? And wow, is money a dangerous false God? Dangerous because money buys stuff. And we like stuff, don't we? And perhaps the false God exposed this past week isn't money, but the God of stuff. Is our stuff an idol we have, do you think? Hmm. No idols is God's second command after no other gods before me. Well, what a coincidence. In Psalm 135, we see the danger of having other gods before God and the danger of idols. The psalmist says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Now, before you only think of a little wooden idol... It struck me as I was reading that, look at my dollar bill. Wow, there's a mouth on there, but it can't speak. Mr. Washington's eyes can't see. His ears can't hear. I don't think he's breathing. And then catch the last line that the psalm gives us those who make them their idols will be like them and so will all who trust in them to paraphrase we become like what we worship so if we worship money or if we worship the stuff money can buy then according to the psalmist we become like Stuff, a thing to buy and sell, 
rather than image bearers of the true and living God. And what happens when people in a culture become treated like stuff? Well, if people are simply stuff, then why not buy and sell them like we do stuff? Why not treat them like stuff? Measure them by how useful they are to us or how attractive they might be to us. How about prostitution and abortion, to name two examples? Is our culture's struggle with these and other things like them a result of our becoming what we worship? Our prostitution and abortion or any other struggle where the value of human life is at issue, do they come from our God of riches causing us to teach, to treat human life just like any other stock on Wall Street? See, God knows what He's doing when He commands no other gods and no idols. This God of money or stuff is devastating. And we see a peak, a little peak of people being treated like stuff in the story of Herod Agrippa before us. Her name is Bernice. Luke tells us that Herod shows up with Bernice. Now, who cares? Why does Luke bother to include that detail? Why might that be important? Well, Bernice, Bernice is Herod's sister. And her story goes that at the age of 13, she married her uncle, a different Herod. And when he died, she went and lived with Agrippa. And the rumors of incest between Agrippa and Bernice were everywhere. Herod tried to dodge the rumor by marrying Bernice off to the king of Cilicia. But soon after the wedding, she left her new husband and went back to rejoin and live with her brother Agrippa. Later, history tells us Bernice became the mistress of Titus, who later became Caesar. And Titus eventually grew tired of her and ignored her. I wonder if Luke included the detail of Bernice, which really isn't otherwise important at all to the story Luke is trying to tell, is it? I wonder if Luke lets us know Bernice is there to highlight, to highlight the other gods of riches and power that Herod Agrippa represents. Here's Agrippa and his sister living in incest. And so maybe to the list of where the gods of riches and power often lead, we can add things like inappropriate sexual liaisons. Things like confusion over the institution of marriage. Confusion over gender. Do you know of any culture that follows the gods of wealth and power that struggles with any of those things? So what can we learn today about finishing well? How about this? We finish well when we trust in God above all else. Paul did. The contrast between Herod and Paul couldn't be any greater. Rich and powerful versus someone who has neither riches or power. Earthly power. A king arriving with pomp and circumstance versus a prisoner summed into the room in chains. And yet, which man is finishing well? Who would the world identify as the one finishing well? Why is Paul the one finishing well? Well, Paul has put his trust in God above all else. 
And even if shaken after hearing Paul, Herod has not and will not make that commitment. And when we put our trust in God above all else, guess what? The power of our witness goes through the roof. Take the present financial crisis, for example. Paul's people's confidence in the gods of riches and power are clearly shaken. Yes? Yes? And in the midst of it all, we, as followers of Jesus, as followers of the true and living God, can be an island of confidence in the only true and living God. When I was looking through the pictures of perplexed and vexed stockbrokers, I came across one guy of the dozens of pictures that are on the Internet. One guy and only one that reminded me of the Apostle Paul. Here he is. What do you think? See, there are three options with this guy. Option number one, he's an idiot. (laughs) Now you laugh, that's a biblically based option. What does Festus yell about Paul? You're an idiot! I wonder if Festus senses, despite Paul being in his chains, despite the world against him, there Paul says, just laying it out there with a peace that passes understanding about him, talking about people rising from the dead, talking about the hope. Maybe he looked a lot like that. So, one, he's an idiot. Two, well, this one was for humor, but it kind of goes with three. He got out of the market the day before the collapse, right? (laughs) Sold everything. Okay. And the reason why that's not quite a joke is option number three is really the same as two. I suppose it could be. Maybe his God is not money and power. Maybe because he never got into the market, metaphorically at least. I'm clicking at my desk through all these internet things, saying, man, these are some people that it, it scared me seeing every, all these so called experts. So, so I'm clicking through, and I came across that guy, and immediately I said out loud, and I don't think anybody, I said, oh, look, a Christian! <laughs> now, I don't really know if he's a believer, who knows? But the picture, I think, is a picture, at least, of what Christians should be like in a world that God shakes, in a world where God shakes to expose false gods of the world. Let me ask you, if you're on the trading floor that day with all the doom and gloom and panic around you, and this guy walks by, aren't you immediately drawn to him? Hey, what's in his investment portfolio? What's he invested in? What does he know that I don't? What's with him? How can he be smiling? He stands out, doesn't he? Take that picture into our lives and witnesses as followers of Jesus Christ. When the gods of this world come crashing down, people will begin asking those questions they have all week. 
And they should ask those questions of us, shouldn't they? Shouldn't we stand out? What is the matter with you Christians? Are you idiots? Are you out of your mind? What do you know that makes you smile? And we can answer the question, maybe something like this. It's not about what I know, but who. His name's Jesus. I'm smiling because I trust in him above all. And I'm smiling today, even through the worst of times, because he's my God. Hey, how about it? Would you like to know him, too? And who knows? Maybe they'll be shaken enough to pause, intrigued enough to listen. And if before God it's their time to repent and prove their repentance by their deeds, maybe they'll surrender their false gods to the God of heaven and earth. God has rattled the world, see? We'll go and calm them with the good news of Jesus Christ, Church of God. But before we can do that, we need to be truly trusting God above all else, are we? Or we're not going to stand out. We've got nothing more to say. Or are we rattled too because we have a God of money or stuff before God? We struggle with this idol just like everyone else. See, we cannot be a witness of hope and light if we too are discouraged and act like we're in the dark, act like the gods of money and power and stuff are our gods above God too. If you struggle with that, like I do, then I have a suggestion. It's something we're doing as a family to meet these tough times too. So I invite you to join us. I invite you to use this present shakeup as an opportunity to gauge your dependence on other gods before God. How dependent have you become on money or stuff? Take a look at your checkbook. Does anyone use checkbooks anymore? <laughs> take a look at your checkbook or take a look at your credit card statement. Go down each item one by one. Do it. I have little doubt when we do that, most of us at least will find many, many things that we can do without. We'll find where lots of stuff that we really don't need has creeped into our lives and taken control of our lives. And we've got a golden opportunity to leave that stuff alone. Get rid of it. Get out of that market and do without it. And when we do that, we strengthen, I think, our trust being in God above all else, including our financial security. We strengthen our, our trust in God above all by removing stuff idols from our lives. So take inventory this week, would you? Where does your money go? Is your treasure here on earth getting in the way of laying your treasure, your trust in God? Finishing well means striving to keep our conscience clear before God and man by loving people into the kingdom. And finishing well means trusting in God above all. And both mean living life so that the world may know there is but one true God who never, ever crashes. 
Make your decision today like Joshua did long ago. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've shaken the world and you've shaken us. Help us to use this as a time to rededicate everything, our all, heart, soul, might, and mind to loving you and to loving others. Help us, Father, as a culture, as a nation, as a church, as individuals, to rid our lives of the idolatry of stuff. And the confidence that even unknowingly or well-intentioned, we place in stuff like bank accounts or cars or who wins the election or help us, Father, to realize that we need not be shaken. We need not fear regardless of circumstances, because none of those circumstances are above you. You and you alone are God. While still in a posture of prayer, would you stand please and receive God's benediction as we close this morning. And Father, I pray that you give all of us here individually, as families and as a community, You give us, Father, the bold humility, the love, the courage to put our trust in you and you alone. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Messiah, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Go in peace. Praise God.